Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We have the great good fortune this week to begin together the book of Bamidbar. We are beginning the book of Numbers. So we are in Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapter one. Um, but it's not the the beginning of the book is not a terribly exciting, if I can say that. Um, it's not a terribly exciting set of texts, right? So because the book of Numbers, why is it called the book of Numbers? Because there's a census taken. Um, because the Israelites, remember, the book of Leviticus gets dropped in right after. You have Genesis, Exodus, and then you have Leviticus dropped in there. Numbers picks up from where Exodus ended. So all that stuff about the Mishkan, all that stuff about the priesthood, all that stuff is all in the book of Leviticus, but it's it, it's there's no time elapse. In there, so the end of Exodus to beginning of Numbers is the is the storyline, is the, you know, time moves on. In the book of Numbers, we are in the first two years of the journey from Egypt. This was supposed to now that there's now that they've done the Mishkan, now that they built it, now that God's presence is there, now that they got that going, they're supposed to now move towards conquering the land of Israel, according to the mythology, right? Our sacred mythology. They're, they are going to conquer the land of Israel, which means they have to be arrayed in battle formation, right? So part of this is about um, moving from the story of Revelation and all of that grooviness. It's now moving to arraying the folks for battle. See, Nick is already yawning. Like, really? Really? Okay. Already like, yeah, this is not the most exciting stuff, Rabbi. Like, can we move on? Right. So, um, so, so the first two years at in chapter 14 of this book, the Israelites will be condemned to die in the desert. Then we get a second census as they're ready to enter the land because now they've had a 40 year delay. Once that decree happens, they have a 40-year delay, and that generation has to die, and then they take another census when that then when the next generation is about to enter the land, right? Because they're going to have to do battle. So we have two census, sensei, two sensei, one now, and then one at the end of the book. So this is the, that's why it's called the book of numbers and then we get each tribe uh iterated by how many folks there are in that tribe um for the mythological number of like 600,000 which is impossible to sustain a population that large in the wilderness right but this is our but we're staying in our willing suspension of disbelief like we're staying in our sacred mythology um 600,000 uh so Aviva Zornberg talks about this. Um, she, she says the book of numbers is really the book of catastrophe. Like this is the book where once that decree happens in chapter 14, this generation, their only job is to die. That's their whole purpose. Their whole purpose is to die. So they have 
I mean, imagine what that's like, knowing that like once the decree happens, they, they have no project. They, there's nothing there's nothing for them to do except die. Um, and so then numbering in a way that second census numbering becomes about absence as well as about presence. Who's not here, right? Till the to the last person that's not here is how long that process takes. When did they know that they were going to die? Chapter 14. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 14. So um, the story of the scouts, right? That's the incident where the Israelites listen to the pessimistic scouts. And don't listen to Joshua and Caleb. And that's the final, that's the final straw. That's the, God has had it. And God's like, this people, get, they can't do it. And we're done. Y'all are going to drop, your carcasses will drop in this desert. So from then, anyone 20 years and older had to die. And that happened within that, that time frame, right? 38 years. It happens in 38 years. So it's like a hurried, it's a hurried dying of a generation that disappears into the sand. So the book of numbers is intense that way. Um, and there's not a lot in those years. Uh, we don't get hardly anything from the 38 years. We get a bunch of stuff in the first two years. We get a bunch of stuff till numbers 14. And then it kind of jumps. There's a couple of things, the rebellion of Korah a couple of things like that. And then it jumps to the end of the desert period. It jumps to when they're about to take the land and the instructions they're getting there. Um, so we get this 38 year kind of silence while a generation dies. Well, they were living until they died. They were living until they died. But existentially. They had nothing. They had free time. They had lots of free time um, to bring their sacrifices and do their thing. Um, but you know, you can imagine, I mean, I, I like how Zornberg paints the, the poignancy of the pointlessness of that generation in the narrative, right? Like we can imagine that each tribe and each clan and each family had their little routines and they would, and they were preparing the next generation, but like on the grand scale, on the operatic you know, epic scale, this generation has nothing left to do after chapter 14, but die. And they need to do it quickly. <laughs> they need to do it in 38 years. Um, so imagine you're, you know, you're 25 years old when the decree happens. You, you've got, right. You're not going to live so very long. So the irony is that the generation that got to see all the miracles is the one that dies. It was the one that disappears into the sands of the Midbar, into the sands of the wilderness. All right. So on that happy, happy note, um, we will take up the book of numbers. I have prepared a couple of visuals for y'all because you were so excited last week that uh, all I need is a little, re a little reinforcement and I'm good to go. Um, so let's, we're going to look at the text we're in. We're going to start in numbers one. We're going to jump to numbers two at some point. So we're going to start at the beginning of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1. By Daber Adonai Moshe, Bamidbar Sinai, Be'ohel Mo'ed, 
And so God is speaking to Moshe uh, from the Ohel Moed, from the tent of meeting. And this is uh, on the first day of the month, of the second month in the second year from leaving Egypt. Right? All right. Number two, verse two. Lift up the head of every member of the community of Israel, which means count them. By their family groups, meaning their clans. By the house of their ancestors. So we need the the number, uh, the uh, the number of all the guys who are twenty years old and older, because that's who's going to be your fighting force. So this is a this is a military census. This is a census to figure out how large your army is. Okay. Mi benasrim shana bimala. In case you doubt me, from 20 years and up, all who will go out in the tzava to be, be part of the army, be Israel of Israel, you shall count them. But this word, this pe kuf dalid resh, pe kuf dalid pakad. So this is about having a role. This is about, so you, you give someone a job, essentially. You give someone a role. So even though it's a euphemism for counting, this is exactly opposite of what you would call counting that is dehumanizing. This is the exact opposite of that. Everybody counts. Everybody matters. Lift up the head of every Israelite. If you lift up someone's head, you by definition are looking them in the eye. So so that that phrase, that idiomatic expression about counting is the same insistence that this is not a numbering of human beings that is dehumanizing. It is, in fact, the opposite. Everyone has has a role. Everybody has a job. Um and and it's it's um, tafkid. That's exactly what it is. Tafkid is a job. So it's it's this old. So tafkid as task as role as job is this old. They know that usage here when they're using it to say counting. And I think it's really important that, that lots of commentators pick up on this. It's not just me. Like, but lots of the commentary is because it's very easy to reduce people to numbers as no people knows that better than we do who grew up looking at tattoos on arms. None of us, it's not lost on us, but it's interesting that it's in the, it's in the language of Torah this early that you don't count people as numbers, that they're not just a mass. You count them out of either out of love, which God does that's the the rabbis talk about our, us being amsegula God's precious you know special people then you if you have a collection you count them right am i right judith yes right 
So um, if you've been to Judith's home, she has a fantastic collection of just about everything. Um, <laughs> only if there's two of them. Only there's two of them. Um, and, and it covers every surface in the house. And so like, I can imagine, you know, how about how many plates you have, about how many dolls from, you know, this country, about how many statues from representing this, like you, you count what you love, right? You're paying attention to it. And it's about, so it's either about like out of preciousness, you want to know how many you have because you love them so much. And it's this sense of tough kid. It's the sense of everybody matters. Everybody has a role. And there is a dignity in that, that Torah really is, is about preserving. Are the numbers on the arms, the number is, are they consecutive, the number of people? So the first person who had the tattoo put on his arm would be one. Something. That I don't know. So those numbers, we don't know the significance. I, I don't. I'm sure historians do, but it was way too dark for me. Yes. Like it, it was just way too dark for me to. Whenever we do this piece, whenever we read this, I think about um, immigration and the the dehumanizing word surge. And the word surge, word surge, and yes. because it's it's not individualized; it's just a mass. Correct. And we don't think of each individual person has a story and a life and goals. And it, it's a really good point. Counting. It's a really good point. Torah is aware of that danger, and so is the tradition, because the tradition lifts this up all the time. This, you know, the tradition that comes after Torah lifts this up all the time. That there's a teaching here that's critical, and it's very easy for us to forget. So exactly when we hear on the news that there's going to be a surge of immigration when the COVID, you know, stuff is lifted, which didn't happen. Um, it's been, we're going to say it, it's been surging, right? With all of the issues and problems and challenges and dangers, you know, that people live with and want to obviously escape. So, right. So, so Torah is warning us against, in a positive way, warning against that kind of um, dehumanization. All right. So associated with you shall be a participant from each tribe. We want to make sure everybody's counted. So you have somebody from each tribe making sure the count is accurate, right? So nobody says, oh, you underestimated the number, right? So no, no, it's Jews. You're going to have somebody from each tribe there to, to check off, right? The, the numbers. Then we get the names because again, how do you designate importance? You name people. You don't just say, and then there was the guy from God. And then there was that chick from Ruven and, you know, like the, you, you name them. So we get all of their names here. Um, Nachshon ben Aminadav. Some of y'all may know that name, right? Remember Nachshon? Nachshon ben Aminadav. There he is. All, all of us who know the Midrashim about Nachshon jumping into the water. Okay. So we're going to go through all these names. The Red Sea party. That exactly that mid all the midrashim about Nachshon as this guy. Isn't it also they're naming the who their son of? Huh? They they named the from their name and the son of their. That's how you name someone in the Jewish tradition. There aren't family names. It's not like Smith, like or Goldberg is, is more accurate. But um, right, it's you are who you are, son of your father. Here, it's yeah, it has changed now, of course. The boys, no bot, 
all been. No. Here it's all been. Because these, of course, it's only men who are going to be chosen for this role. But of course, I am Rachel Bat Yechezkel Vashendo. Right, you know, so we are our Hebrew name, daughter of or son of our parents' names. And this, and it's obviously an ancient tradition. Um, the house. Yeah, no, no worries. But you have, you are, you have your Hebrew name as well. Bat Avraham Bissarach. Those are the elected of the assembly, the chieftains of their ancestral tribes. They're the heads of the contingents of Israel. So Moshe and Aaron took those participants who were designated by name. And on the first day of the second month, they convoked the whole company of fighters, as in parentheses, because that's who we're talking about, who were registered by the clans of their ancestral houses, the names of those aged 20 years and over being listed head by head. As God commanded Moses, so he recorded them, Bamid Bar Sinai, in the wilderness of Sinai. Then we get the numbers of each of those tribes, right? So we get in verse 21, Reuven, 465, verse 23, 59.3, right? You can see it goes on and on. It's going to go on. How long? It's going to go on 12 times, obviously. Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Those are the enrollments recorded by Moses and Aaron and by the chieftains of Israel who were 12 in number, one participant from each ancestral house, all the Israelite males aged 20 years and older enrolled by ancestral houses. All those in Israel who were able to bear arms came to 603,550. The Levim, however, the Levites were not recorded among them by their ancestral tribe. Why not? They are taking care of the Mishkan. They are not going to fight. They defend encroachment on the sancta that's their that's their job it's not that they don't have weapons it's that they use them against other israelites do not on any account enroll the tribe of levi or take a census of them with the israelites you shall put the levites in charge of the tabernacle of the pact all its furnishings and everything that pertains to it they shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall tend it and they shall camp around the tabernacle so they are supposed to be guarding all of the stuff of the mishkan they can't, their hands are not free to fight, right? Their job is to protect the Mishkan. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. Any outsider who encroaches shall be put to death. So that's their job, to protect and guard against encroachment. The Israelites shall encamp troop by troop, each man with his division and each under his standard. Okay, so troop by troop. So how much is a troop? Not sure. Um, But each person with their division, each under their degel, each under their flag, or in this case, standard. I think it's an I think it's going to play into our commentary, this word standard. And the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the pact that wrath may not strike the Israelite community. The Levites shall stand guard around the tabernacle of the pact. The Israelites did accordingly, just as God had commanded Moses, so they did. Does it say where the Kohanim are in all this? They are part of the Levites. By Deborah, Deniah, and Moshe, Aaron, more. And God speaks to Moshe and Aharon. Remember when we talked about our sources? Notice before it was Moshe, now it's Moshe, Aharon. So, right, these are the folks who, who want very much to put Aaron, right? The priestly writer is very interested in having Aaron be present for certain 
parts of these conversations. Um, okay, so God's, remember, P is all over numbers, all over. God spoke to Moshe and Aaron saying, the Israelites shall camp. How are they going to camp? Ish al diglo. Each person with their degel, their flag, their standard. The otot levet abotam, under the, with the symbol of the house of their ancestors, Yachanu b'nei Israel, they, b'nei Israel, but children of Israel will camp, mineged saviv le'ohel moed yachanu, against and around the ohel moed, like facing the, oh, keneged is facing, they will face the ohel moed and be encamped around it. Okay? All right. So each person by their standard and by their ancestral house. So, so you have your own flag and then you have the flag of your ancestral house. And then, of course, the flag of the tribe. Here's your visual as to what one artist imagines that looks like. Right? <laughs> so you have the, that white, this white tent, this white business. Only Levites can come in here, right? Only Levites can come into the territory around the Mishkan inside that barrier. Only, only priests can go here, right? Only priests can go into the actual Mishkan, into the actual Ohel Moed. Only the high priest, only once a year can go back here into the Holy of Holies, right? Okay, we clear? Kohanim, priests can go here. Levites can go in the outer courtyard to serve and to clean up and to take animal body parts away, right? Okay. Israelites, therefore, do not see anything that's happening in there. They don't, and this is how it worked in the Mesopotamian pagan world as well. The world of the cult was secret. No one saw what happened. You brought your offering. The priest took it and took it into the house of the god or goddess and did what they did with it. Nobody, you know, nobody knew what that was. It is a radical then concept that we have the book of Leviticus. Everybody's supposed to know what goes on. That is completely counter to, right, how how it worked in the ancient world. Do we have any idea what the the flags of the tribes look like? Are they related to the shields at all? The shields? That that the the ones that they wore with the gemstones in them? The breastplates. Only the high priest wears the breastplate. Right. But only the high priest with twelve stones to represent the twelve tribes. Okay. And what about the the flags, do we know anything about? We do. Look- we get a description um, of the banners. And it, yeah. All right. While, while we're waiting for Betsy to get the microphone, here's another rendering. As you can see, the altar, the laver, what's it called? The laver where you wash, right? Where the priest would wash. So here's the animal. Sacrifice altar, here's the laver, 
and here's the Mishkan, here's the tent. So inside the Mishkan itself, inside the tabernacle is the menorah, the table with the showbread, the incense altar, right? And remember, we have that whole thing with Nadav and Avihu, right? That they were worried about that whole fire business. So they rushed in here to offer incense, but out of the Holy of Holies bursts forth, right? God's fire trying to get here to the animal altar. Remember, the animal altar is going to be lit by the fire of God. And so one interpretation is that the fire of God bursts out of here, out of the Holy of Holies, and goes to the animal altar and consumes Nadav and Avihu who are in the way. Right? Okay. What what is referred to as the the tabernacle of the pact? Like what does that mean? The Ohel why are they the Ohel Moed? Yeah, I mean it's the translation is a tabernacle of the pact. Ha'edut. Yeah. So that's another name for the Ohel Moed. So it's the same thing as the tent of meeting. Yes. So th- there's there's scholarly debate about is that a separate tent? Probably there are two traditions that this that there was this Mishkan and that was kind of it. And then there's another tradition, probably a Mushite tradition, where there's a place outside of all of this that God speaks to Moses. Hmm. Um then there's a scholar who argues that the Mishkan was a a, play, a holder, a placeholder where you, there where the Ohel Moed was inside. But we have references to outside the camp. Moshe talks to God in the Ohel Moed, so it's probably two variant traditions that we have. Um, there's a wonderful book called "Who Wrote the Bible," and and he he argues. He argues fairly convincingly that if you look at the dimensions of the Mishkan, it it would house the Ohel Moed or the temple, maybe the temple that housed the Anyway, that he thinks there's a historical kernel, you know, of something there, something, a portable something that was the Ohel Moed. And possibly the Mishkan was made up, but (laughs) we we don't know. Mapitom. Mapitum. All right. So looking at this business of standards and banners. Okay, we just got this whole right, this this verse from Numbers 2 2. So now we're going to look, of course, at Rashi. What does Rashi say? So every person of the house of Israel we got we got is going to camp blah 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 blah. Each banner shall have a different sign to your question, Judas. A piece of colored cloth hanging on it, the color of the one not being the same as the color of another. But the color of each tribe shall be like that of his stone that is fixed in the breastplate. And by this means, everybody will be able to recognize their banner. So there's no confusion. You don't have two purple banners. One's purple, one's orange, one's yellow, one's green. So everybody can clearly see their ancestral banner. The ancestral banner that Rashi's talking about is, of course, the tribal standard, the tribal flag. Because there's 12 of them. 
Another explanation is by the signs, following the signs, which their father, Avotam, the father of them, Av, father, Tam, theirs. So he's, he's saying, don't read their ancestors' house, read their, their ancestor, their common ancestor, Yaakov, their father, who gave them, right? That gave them when they carried him out of Egypt, Genesis 50, 12, and his sons did unto him exactly as he had commanded them. For he had commanded that Judah, Yisachar, and Zavulun should carry him, having their position at the east side of the beer, Ruvain, Shimon, and God at the south side, etc., as it is related in Tanchuma on this section. Okay, what is Rashi saying? Rashi is saying the way that they're arranged around the Mishkan is the way their father, literally their father, Jacob, arranged them when he was dying. That in Genesis 50, when he's he calls them to his deathbed, he tells them where to stand. And that arrangement is this arrangement. So how they stood around his deathbed is how they are camped around the Mishkan. Okay? Which is part of their death march. Exactly. All right. So, so Rashi is saying there's something important that has been passed down since the time of Yaakov that is still being enacted and lived into here. That this was familiar to these descendants from the time of Yaakov, and it attaches them not just to their ancestral house, if we're descendants of the big strapping guy, Gary. Like that, it's back to Jacob. So think about that. What does that do? Relate for Rashi to relate it back to one and common ancestor, Yaakov, that unites this diverse group. Because once you start camping people by tribes, you've got some, hey, wait a minute, how come they're closer to morning sun? And we're stuck over here, like schwitzing in the afternoon with a four o'clock sun pouring into our tents. Who decided that? Now, immediately you have problems. Immediately you've got issues. Unless you read it back into, like our tradition cleverly does, you read it back into, no, 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 no. This, this is how their father arranged them around the bed. Everyone understands and knows this arrangement. And that we're family. Like- and we are united as a family around the Mishkan. Exactly right. So I think it's a, a brilliant move by uh, by the Midrash. Because Rashi's bringing the Midrash from Midrash Tanhuma. All right. Here's another Midrash for a quote from Beit Aaron, quoted in Ichure Torah. Each person under their standard with the banners of their family, every Jew must know and think that they are unique in the world. And there was never anyone exactly like them. If there were someone like them before, there would have been no need for you to come into the world. Every single person is someone new in the world. And it is their duty to improve their ways until all of Israel has attained perfection. Back to this idea that every single person counts, right? So yes, they're under the banners, uh, under a collective banner, but every human being counts and it's everybody's job to improve themselves 
until the entire people of Israel has attained perfection. So now I'm quoting someone talking about that from uh, my Jewish learning. The commentator seems to be exploring the tension between each person finding his or her own personal standard, right back to the double right use of that, and also being grouped into a larger social, social unit under the banner of their family. This is a fundamental tension in contemporary Judaism. Each of us must develop our own personal journey of Jewish spirituality, and yet we are not alone in doing so. We are inheritors of a larger Jewish tradition with all of its teachings and customs and different interpretations. There's no such thing as a Jew who makes up a brand new Judaism for themselves, but rather we always exist as individuals in a creative covenantal relationship with the larger Jewish community. This creative dialectic between individual and community works in both ways. Not only does the individual have to find their own flag, right, their own standard within the larger Jewish tradition, but we must also recognize that the Jewish community is not complete, as it were, unless people are finding their own comfortable place within it. Well said. Um, we don't make up Jewish practice. We reconstruct practices. We reform practices. We conserve some practices, right? Um, but we, we don't make it up out of whole cloth. It's just not Jewish right? To come up with a ritual, you know, that has no, no grounding at all in the tradition. And that's both the beauty of it. And then you get all these different interpretations and all of these different opinions and all these midrashim. And and now you've got stuff on the same page, conflicting in terms of interpretations. This, this is Judaism, right? This is, this is what it is. This is what it, this is what we do. Honoring the individual and and innovation, if you want to put it that way, uniqueness, and also that that we do it within the broader relationship to the history of this people. I have a question. Yes, I vamped long enough for you to get the microphone. <laughs> I wonder about uh, two new rituals that have come about in my time here. If they how they fit into mm-hmm. this. One is the ritual of losing a child uh, at birth or in utero. We, we have we have kind of invented something to have a service for an unborn child, and also the marriage ceremony for two people of the same sex. Would would that be a, an adaptation of something we already had? Or yeah, just- of, of weddings, right? So weddings, you just extend it. We don't do anything different. For it's those for those gay people, like we, you know, we or for us people who don't get married, or for you people who don't get married. Well, we do do something different for you. Yeah, we okay. do do something different for you because the gay weddings are very similar to heterosexual weddings. You just change a little language. Yeah, but you don't do any of that Jewish stuff for someone who doesn't want to be married. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. so it's Dafka. It, that's what distinguishes it. If you do the Jewish language, you're marrying. Okay, so they are adaptations of what is. Yes. Just extended. Correct. As is a funeral. Yes. We don't have funerals in Torah. There is no funeral. Is there no is there no practice delineated for funerals? No. Not not here. It's rabbinic. Okay. All of the liturgy and okay. stuff is rabbinic. And again, all we did was extend that for infants. Uh, we, it's nothing different. Okay. In ter- 
it's different in its approach of being inclusive and then applying it to new categories of people. Um, and there's a lot of room for extension and development. Absolutely. We, we do now foot washings often at baby namings for girls because there's no physical ritual, thank God, parallel to circumcision, right, for girls, Baruch Hashem. Uh, and so we have this, you know, ritual that people are really liking of foot washing. Right? Right? And it was just a tradition in the ancient Near East to welcome people into your tent by washing their feet. And you committed to protecting any guest. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, because they took in guests and then were going to violate them. It is not about homosexuality. We'll get there. But um, that's what that's about. It's about they took guests in and you must defend guests with your own life. And they did the sacrilege. The highest heresy you could do was violate the safety of guests. Um, and it's still this way in like among the Bedouin and other semi-nomadic peoples, because everyone's going to need a place to stay eventually. If you journey out, you're going to need safety and shelter and a place to stay. And you have to be able to trust that place. And that's the culture, right? Is that it becomes sacrosanct that you give up your own life to protect a guest. Um, and so it's a lovely thing to say to a baby, welcome. And we are all here to protect you like in the ways that we can. All right. The narrative of the, of the Israelites camps, the Israelite camps organization describes the creation of a human community striving to embody the sacred, integrate heaven and earth, make imminent that which is the transcendent and translate the eternal into the here and now. By Midbar, by locating the ark and the tabernacle at the center illustrates the importance of orienting all aspect of any living organism toward its higher purpose in creation. This is Rabbi Pamela Wax. In this series, meaning her Torah commentary um, for that year, we have learned that the Hebrew word kavod, meaning uh, glory, right? Respect, connotes weightiness, because kaved means heavy, and describes a palpable sense of the divine presence. The mishkan signifies the midah, of kavod, the awareness of sacred presence and purpose. And kavod's placement in the center represents its primacy in the design. The numbering and ordering of the individuals, clans, and tribes, as well as their equidistant placement encircling the Mishkan, indicates an intent to infuse the entire system with sacred weightiness. We can practice this in our lives by paying closer attention to the extent to which the individual elements of our lives, family, work, friendships, Passions, leisure, mind, body, and spirit are aligned with each other. Meaning those are, there are distinct things, right? That go on in our lives, just like there are distinct clans. Um, hopefully they are all right in some kind of alignment, right? Related to something bigger. We can notice whether these elements are infused with kavod, attention to others and our own innate worth, and whether they are pointing towards our highest aspirations. So within us as well, there's this multiplicity, and but it needs to be organized under one goal, which is lining those all up to work to getting us to be the people that we really want to be, which is, I think, a beautiful teaching. 
on one level, this is from uh, Parsha Nut. I'm pretty, oh, no, this is Aviva Zornberg. <laughs> on one level, flags celebrate a world in which each person recognizes their own tribe and affiliates gen- with their genet- genetically with their past. On another level, we might understand this aff- affiliation as an inner sense of connection with the fathers, going back to Avraham. God said to Avraham, Ko, so shall be your seed. This should be read as a blessing, meaning may your seed resemble you. Ko means like, and so. So may your seed resemble you. The flag then comes to celebrate not a simple and proper tribal grouping, but the spiritual act of identification with the father, the patriarch Avraham, to be the seed of Avraham. So those, we were just talking about naming, right? So Lee, you're, you're, you are Bat Avraham. You are Bat Avraham the Sarah, right? So to be the seed of Avraham, right? It's all exactly right. To be Bat Avraham is to remain connected, not to be alienated, to acknowledge one's inmost affiliation. It is a choice. Closing that, not sure what happened there. Don't think that belongs there. The flag then comes to celebrate not a simple, I just read that. It is a choice. On one level, flags separate, celebrate a world in which this cutting and pasting for my safari, I think, did not work very well this time. <sighs> yes, please. Ah. So I want to know how I should handle myself differently next year when the Chabad comes to my door uh-huh. and offers their lovely matzah. Because this year what happened, <laughs> I accepted it as a fellow affiliated tribal community and I thanked them at first because of that you know recognition I feel like you know that we're talking about here the separate tribes um and that was all lovely and so my son came up behind me and they said oh hey you little kid have you wrapped to fill in today and I said you didn't ask me that and that hurts my feelings and they started to say oh well there's different things of women I said uh it hurts my feelings that you excluded me. But I'm thinking, and I was so proud of myself. Oh, <laughs> I told them. But now I'm thinking maybe I wasn't being generous enough with the, you know, you've got yours, I got mine. But so, so what's the plan for next year when we come to the door? That's a good question, Laura. What do you think the plan is for next year? I mean, I kind of want to say the same thing. <laughs> Because it did. It felt expi- so I think the plan for next year is to not be so angry when I tell them, but to say, I got to share with you that in my Judaism, women late to we, we, I can do all of that. And just so you know, it's great. You do you, do you mm-hmm. but here's how it works in our house. So have a great day. Beautiful. And the matzah was stale, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably it wasn't stale. It was shmura matzah. That's how it tastes. That's how it tastes. Yes. Shmura matzah is like, it's like eating the box. So like, I'll I'd rather eat the box. And I'll have a box ready for them. Yeah. Uh, here's the good matzah. You can say here, have you tried gluten-free potato matzah? It rocks. It's like a sheet of potato chips. Oh, it, is awesome. it is awesome. Oh. It is awesome. It is awesome. No, you just, you buy it. It's gluten-free matzah. So it's made with potato flour. 
It tastes like a great big potato chip. It's awesome. That might be the second best thing I learned today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one should express a wish not to be alienated from the ancestors, that one's life should have a nigia, a touch, some contact with their lives. In the same way, the signs, the insignia on the flags express a yearning that one's life bears some intimation, some fleeting glimpse of affinity with their lives. This is the leap, the occasional leaf amim flash of desire that connects one with one's roots. Very Aviva Zornberg. Um, that, uh, that we should want a nigia, like, as opposed to how you are used to hearing nigia, how I grew up hearing nigia. Touching, touching, no touching, right? We Boys and girls weren't allowed to touch in the yeshiva that I went to, um, which I have to say was actually a kind of relief. I do have to say there was some relief in being a teenage girl, knowing nobody could touch me but other girls. Um, Nagia, Nagia. So like, but there's a good Nagia, right? That Aviva Zornberg's pointing out our life. We should want our lives to have some Nagia, some touching on the lives of the ancestors. And of course, you all know that I don't descend from this people, right? So it, it's not for me in any sense, biological in any sense. You know, for me, this is about, we should want our lives to touch the lives of the ancestors. Like who, I don't even believe really existed. Right. So, right. So, but there were people back then who, who gave us this and who kept reading into this enough gorgeousness that we're sitting here. In 2023. And that's why we're here. And I think that's, it's a beautiful interpretation that we should want our lives to touch somehow, right? The, the lives of those, the stories of those, uh, before us. Uh, um, now it also brings up the fact that flags can be about war, right? This is a military endeavor. And it can be in these interpretations that we've just been reading, it can be about love, right? So it gets traced back to the beloved father. This is not just a matter of territory or pride. These flags also represent a profound connection to home and tradition and even love. There is a tension inherent in any form of nationalism. On the one hand, when masses of people are mobilized together through shared ethnic identity, there's always a great danger of their coming to violence. But on the other hand, Through these tribe-like national affiliations, we are able to experience a sense of belonging in our society as if it were our own family. Nations can breed hatred, but they can also cultivate love. Flags can be symbols of aggression or of affection. And just in case you doubt, he brings us sources. We only see Degel used not so much in Torah, but where do we see it next? We see it in Psalms. And in Psalms, May we shout for in your victory arrayed by, right? Need goal ye male. So arrayed by standards, by flags in the name of our God, meaning war. We won victory. We're under our flags. Yay, team. We're the best. But if you look at Song of Songs, he brought me to the banquet room and his banner of love was over me. I'm not talking about war. That's not talking about, right? mm -mm -mm -mm. My beloved is clear skinned and ruddy, preeminent among 10,000, but the word is dagul. 
among 10,000 preeminent. Dagul from Flag, Degel, right? So is Standy Audi, you know, I guess this is the correct translation, right? But but you can see in the Song of Songs, you know, and his vidiglo alai ahava, and his flag was draped over me, okay? Kind of opposite of war, <laughs> right? Um, this is absolutely a, a, a indication of love. Song of Songs is nothing but erotic poetry. Um, so a flag can be a marker of love or the banner of war. They might go either way. In fact, there, and this is our guy from Parsonut. Um, in fact, the rest of the book of numbers will continue to play out this tension through their long desert journey. They will be learning what it means to be a nation, the good, the bad, and the sometimes very ugly. Just like today. Just like today, which is why I brought you that source, because I think this is one of the major challenges that we are seeing in in the age that we're living in. There have always been nations, obviously. We're going back to biblical texts. Living in an age where nationalism was the organizing principle, we're still living with a lot of the consequences of that, right? Like, so... And yeah, think think what a swastika a swastika flag does to us, right? It is very um, in, intense. I mean, at least for me, like I, I'm, you know, it just it just triggers so much because that flag has meaning, and um, and we're still living. And I, again, I know this has always been human history, but I think there is a particular kind of ugliness in the age of nationalism that we've seen that is just, we're still dealing with the fallout, you know, of it Um, where whose borders are where and who encroaches on whose borders. And again, I know this is human nature. I know that there's something about, you know, the, the nationalism that the chest thumping nationalism that we've seen in the, you know, in, in these last centuries that is, is, really distressing right and like when are we going to get it that we're one world community you know and and we see it with climate change and the destruction you know of the ecosystem is that you know like hello like it belongs to everybody like you know so we got when are we going to figure it out that we're all you know evolved children of this planet we're all creatures of the planet like it's like and i know it sounds so utopian and so naive i don't mean it to i mean i'm hoping we are coming out of some of the incredible saber-rattling nationalism. It's like, and being able to identify with different groups as groups. I love being American. I love America. I am a patriot. Doesn't mean I need to denigrate somebody else from some other country with another culture and another language and another. And just when are we going to, when are we going to get it? I'm hoping we're hoping we're coming out of this, you know, really militaristic nationalistic phase of human experimentation and hopefully God willing moving towards, right. Some, some more of what we've been talking about here, that, that understanding that each, each group, each, people, each whatever has its own culture and its own history and its own traditions and its own goals and ambitions. And sometimes that's going to get clashy. I get it, you know, but we can work it through. Like, and, and so I'm, this Parsha really made me hyper aware of, oh yeah, that's, 
It's it can go either way. Isn't that a part of our prayer for Israel? That the lion shall lie down with the lamb, and there will be war no more. It's part of the prayer for Israel that Israel can be a symbol of the peace that we seek for all people. Yes. Um, but yes. there's a but there's a there's a but about that. If you look at today's LA Times, you see. Um, unfortunately, with a lot of Israeli flags, standards, um, behavior that you just wish wasn't there. Correct. And Robert, Bob Ettinger is talking. Um, I couldn't agree more, Bob. And it's very distressing. Um, I, I was exactly going to say something like, that's why I paused after Judah's comment. Cause it's like, yeah, that's the prayer for Israel. And Israel's like any other country. And right now is just as polarized as any other country and unfortunately has just as much icky, ugly, disgustingness happening as anywhere else. It's unfortunately not even close to fulfilling the words of the prophet. And then to be clear, the, the words of the prophet are about the messianic age. That's not about right Israel. Now you see the flags that were in this last march on Yom Yerushalayim on Jerusalem Day celebrating the the taking back of Jerusalem in 67, the flags that were being waved were ultra nationalist, right-wing, hateful symbols. So when I see those flags, you know, what they stand for, you know, and then like you said, even literally a pride flag, prize, the rainbow flag is just about, yay, we're all different and we're different in a certain way. And that brings us together. And we keep adding to that alphabet and, so looking all around the country, you can see other flags. Other flags that are showing a lot of the same thoughts or approaches that are negative. Yes, like, absolutely. So it's not just. No, 100%. And I, I misspoke if I meant to say it's worse in Israel. Wait, nationalist flags here are just We're as disgusting. on that at the moment here at this moment. But in just thinking about it, why rain? Everybody right. And, and, and it's why I think it's why it was, it was so upsetting for those of us watching on January 6th, because it was exactly this tension between those of us who are patriots and love this country. I'm not saying the ultranationalists are not patriots. You know, God forbid. I don't want to misspeak, but, um, like those of us who are patriots and love this country and love what, everything about what democracy stands for, however messy it is, however complicated. And yeah, we got to keep working on it. For sure. But the capital is like a symbol of all different interests coming together to try to figure this mess out. Those of us who love that as a national symbol saw people carrying American flags desecrating that and looking to hang people whose job it was to be in there because we sent them there. That's what democracy is. And I think it's why it was so terribly upsetting is it's exactly you saw exactly the the clash of what the same symbol can mean. The American flag over the Capitol and the American flags waving as people came in to destroy the democratic process. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.